Well, welcome everyone and thank you for coming. Um, I hope you'll be as intrigued as I have been in the past couple of days thinking through the intersection between Gertrude Stein and the sculptor Joe Davidson. Now both the sitter here, Gertrude Stein, the modernist uh, literary figure and celeb expatriatic celebrity, and Joe Davidson, the naturalistic sculptor, um, were outsized personalities, I could say. Uh, Joe Davidson was a, a big guy, sort of a bear of a man. Here he is in his self-portrait. Big head, big bushy beard. Um, and I should mention that this sculpture is installed in our Joe Davidson exhibition, which is on the second floor, all the way around on the other side near the elevators. And I urge you to go see his, his sculptures. Um, and of course, Gertrude, as you can see, was quite an ample-bodied person. And that effect was intensified by her frequent um, use of very loose clothing. Um, she sometimes, very shortly after this, she cut her hair extremely short and would wear loose flowing robes or sort of mannish suits with great big jackets. So, but more important than their physical size, both Davidson and Stein were large personalities. Both of them were fascinating and compelling in their own different ways, and they had an enormous impact on the people that, that gathered around them. And uh, it's so hard to really pull somebody like Gertrude Stein together very quickly, so I've got a few notes and quotes here, if you'll forgive me so I don't leave anything out. And um, Stein kind of held court like an empress um, at her Saturday evening salons in Paris, where she lived and um, really gathered about her a very influential group of, of artists and writers and, and, um, and composers. Joe Davidson was a different kind of personality. He was a raconteur and a bon vivant, and he could inevitably be found at some watering hole where artists gathered at whatever city he happened to be in at the time. So both of them had this large impact on people. Um, both Davidson and Stein were quite obsessed by their craft, fascinated by the creative process. Both of them loved meeting people, and particularly famous people. They were both social beings. They collected people. They collected circles of followers and friends. Um, and so they had this very these very interesting similarities. And of course, both of them were quite fascinated by notions of portraiture. But that said, Davidson and Stein really take very divergent approaches to this idea of portraiture. Stein, of course, um, was sort of the high priestess of modernism, and her literary uh, experiments were very abstract, totally baffling to, very, to much of her audience. Um, and Davidson was a naturalistic sculptor. He really um, didn't even go towards the streamlined, stylized, geometric approach that some of his contemporaries were doing in sculpture at the time. So they had these very divergent approaches, and I think that, they're, that comparing and contrasting Stein and Davidson and, and sort of thinking about their interconnection can really help us tease out some of the meanings of portraiture early in the 20th century. So let's start with Gertrude Stein, who, as I mentioned, is a little hard to, to get a, a handle on. Um, she wrote poetry, prose, literary theory, 
libretti for opera, um, the uh, ballets, uh, children's books, memoirs, um, all of these different uh, forms she experimented with. And she also invented the, the prose portrait. And these were radically abstract. They were a loose stringing together of words that had individual meaning, but were not really um, meant to have a kind of narrative to them. Uh, they were really very obscure to read. And she wrote these about her friends and acquaintances. She wrote one on Picasso, one on Matisse, and she wrote one about Joe Davidson. And I'll quote a line or two from, from that in a minute. But I think it's important to understand Gertrude Stein was also a noted celebrity. And she really, uh, she was one of these people that kept reinventing herself. She kept refining her, her public persona. And I think that's very much a part of who and what she was. Um, initially, when Gertrude Stein moved to Paris in 1903 to live with her brother Leo, she was famous for the art collection that the two of them had assembled. Um, they began to, uh, they were really inspired actually by her, her older brother Michael Stein and his wife Sarah who were also collecting modern art. And at their home at 27 Rue de Fleurou really became a destination for Parisians and for visitors from all over the world, particularly American artists, all of whom gathered um, at this house to see the extraordinary paintings they had assembled by Gauguin and Matisse and Cezanne and Picasso and many others. So they, uh, Gertrude initiated these Saturday evening um, gatherings where artists and intellectuals and um, composers and, um, and writers would all gather. Um, and eventually, Leo and Gertrude did split up their collection. He left Paris in 1914, but by then, her partner Alice B. Toklas had moved in and, and Alice helped to organize these events. And at this point, Gertrude was collecting the Cubist paintings by Picasso and Brock. And um, everybody who came to these Saturday evenings, it was clear to everyone that it was Gertrude now that Leo had gone who was the center of attention. And Alice made sure that the focus, focus was always on her. Now, of course, she was also famous for these experimental writings, and her home became a, a literary mecca as well as an art destination. And she, many of the young uh, writers of the day, Scott Fitzgerald, Hemingway, would come to visit Gertrude Stein. She would make pronouncements on their, their writings and give them advice whether they wanted it or not. And let me just give you a quote um, from her portrait about Joe Davidson. Do you wish for he wishes, for do you wish for do they wish for them? Does he wish for do they wish for him? Many, many tickle you for them. Many, many tickle you for him. So what is she doing here? She's, she's playing with language. She's playing with words. She's alighting poetry and prose. She's taking words that have individual meanings but she's not connecting them in such a way as to provide a narration or a description. She's uh, using, she's not using grandiose words so much. She's using what Sherwood Anderson called little housekeeping words or swaggering, bullying street corner words. She's real, she really loves words, but she wants to combine them in a wholly different way. She's very influenced by Cezanne in this and his idea that 
each part is as, is as important as the whole, that each plane of color should be as essential as any other. She's also influenced by Picasso and Cubism and the idea of pulling reality apart and putting it together in a wholly new way with different viewpoints. So this was very influential on her own little circle of, of admirers and followers, and um, really not only in her own day, but really extending generations beyond her death. And not just poets and writers, but equally influential for visual artists and composers. So I think it's important to note that radical ideas of portraiture that were being developed by people like Picasso and Stein um, really made the whole notion of portraiture very exciting and experimental in the early 20th century. And this is intersecting with new ideas about identity that are being investigated um, in the fields of philosophy, psychology, religion, science, by various individuals, William James, for instance, with whom Gertrude studied psychology when she was at Harvard, um, Sigmund Freud, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, all these people were studying the nature of the self. And the notion that there was a singular, fixed, controllable identity that was externally evident on your face was beginning to, uh, to dissolve. Darwin, after all, was suggesting that genetic predisposition had something to do with your character. And Freud was suggesting that the subconscious, that subconscious forces also controlled character. So this, this, all of this undercut this, these established notions of consciously directed moral character. So this whole, a whole concept of, of identity and multiple identities really made, made portraiture um, a very, I mean, it was really traversing completely new intellectual territory at this point. So I think all of this is combining in terms of these experiments with, with portraiture and how exciting the notion of portraiture was at this very moment. So meanwhile, what is Joe Davidson up to? He sticks with his very realist, naturalist kind of approach. And it's not because he didn't know of all of this kind of experimentation. He met Gertrude Stein in 1909. He visited her home. He also helped organize the Armory Show, which introduced a lot of the French modernists, the more radical ideas of the French modernists to the American public in 1913. He, he had one of Gertrude Stein's prose portraits of Mabel Dodge, and he writes in his autobiography that he um, got a hold of this little pamphlet that had been published, and he took it to Moukin's restaurant, where his artist buddies were hanging out, and he would read it aloud to the whole table. He said the reactions were various. <laughs> Nobody really understood, but they were all intrigued. Um, and, David, and Davidson actually remained friends with Gertrude. He and his wife remained friends with Gertrude and Alice. They visited each other's summer homes. They, they, they had quite a good close friendship. Um, but so in, in 1923, he gets Gertrude Stein to sit for her portrait. And he does write about this in his autobiography, and I, I think it's, it's worth quoting. Gertrude's was a very rich personality. Her wit and laughter were contagious. While I was doing her portrait, she would come around to my studio with a manuscript and read it aloud. The extraordinary part of it was that as she read, I never felt any sense of mystification. When she read aloud, I got the humor of it. We both laughed, and her laughter was something to hear. 
there was an eternal quality about her. She somehow symbolized wisdom. And Davidson was not the only one to speak of Gertrude Stein in this way. Right about the same time that the New York Tribune called her the spiritual mother of all modernists. So this was not completely unusual. Davidson always kept in touch with journalists, and he convinced um, Vanity Fair to publish the, po the prose uh, portrait that she had written of him. And I just want to show you this page from Vanity Fair with an introduction, and then Gertrude Stein's prose uh, portrait of Davidson. And illustrated with it is an, a photograph by Man Ray. We have a copy in our collection of Gertrude Stein sitting for this particular sculpture. So this is coming out in Vanity Fair magazine. So it wasn't just uh, Gertrude Stein's elite little salon that is, is learning about her, but it's getting a broader audience. Um, so there is that celebrity aspect of Gertrude Stein to remember. She actually did a very successful tour, lecture tour in America in um, 1934 to 35, where she traveled around to numerous sittings and was very popular. But in 1923, I think Davidson is really stretching himself beyond the kind of natural realist sculpture that he's used to doing. Although he knows her personality, he likes her personality, he laughs with her, that isn't what he's getting at here. That's normally what he's intrigued by. His usual approach was, to get was just to get his subjects to talk. He didn't even pose them. He just got them to talk, and he, said, he claimed that he got insights through people talking. And you see that in the sculpture that he, that he provides. There's, it's really, a, they're great examples of, of life portraiture. There's such animation in the face. There's such a lifelike quality. You really feel like you can experience what the artist was experiencing, that person's um, personality. You really see the relationship between them in those sculptures. So that's what he's usually up to. That's not, I think, what he's doing here. I think what he's doing is not look, trying to capture the personality or the celebrity. He's trying to get at that mystical side, that larger-than-life, influential um, kind of person that so many people talk about, the modern Buddha. And so how has he done that? Um, the surface, um, the, the texture and the, his, and the surface of this image is really quite calm compared to what you often see. It's usually a very, very animated kind of surface on his sculpture. You, you'll notice if you see, see these. And this one is actually quite smoothed out, fairly little surface animation. And notice how he's posed her, very frontal. A lot of his portrait busts, the head is tilted or the shoulders are a little askew, and that, that's part of that liveliness. This is a very static, immobile, frontal kind of pose. You'll notice that the nose and the chin and the bro brooch and the V of the hands echoing the V of the blouse are all on this, very, on this center axis, all aligned on this, along this center axis. So all of these qualities, and you have the, the downcast eyes, the sort of um, very solemn expression, a lack of re any real connection with the viewer. So I think by all of these means, he is trying to get at um, 
something beyond personality and really aiming for that sort of mystical, almost spiritual side of her as a sort of modern uh, priestess of, of modern art. Um, and I think that, and there's also very little detail in the clothing, even as you, as you walk around this image, compared to what you see in his other sculptures, it's really fairly minimal. That ruffled blouse could be in, very, in, in great relief, and that's normally how we would approach things, rather than very much understated here. So all of this, and including the fact, oh, he'd, he'd originally done just a head of her, that's also an important thing, um, and she, and we, you can see that head installed on the second floor. But then he's, he decided, he wrote in his autobiography that just a head was not enough. There was so much more to her than that. So I did a seated figure, figure of her, a sort of modern Buddha. So I think that's what he's getting at here. Um, and so I think in their separate ways, Stein and Davidson are both reacting to this influence in the early 20th century where identity was very important and it was, it was, and there was a que this quest to look beyond the surface, to look beyond the realist um, singular identity and really try to get at something perhaps in this case symbolic, um, symbolic of that eternal wisdom that he saw in her. Any questions about all of this? Did she like this? Um, she liked him. I don't know that I have any quotes about what she thought about this. But she, she sat for a lot of artists. She sat for a lot of artists. And um, actually, we're doing an exhibition um, next year on portraits of Gertrude Stein. And how many portraits, Beth? You're working. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> She sat for a lot of artists, and she was very encouraging to artists. And so my guess is that she liked their different, um, different interpretations of her, and she would have liked this very much. She did write in, um, in her autobiography that she found him witty and amusing. So they, they really got along very well. And I think when you look at the whole broad picture of it, their, perhaps their, their approaches weren't as divergent as I first thought they might be. Were, were there multiple copies of one of, of her head? I think so, Herschel. That's a did, good question. Then, I know that the, the question the, would be, did she have one? Did she put it out? And, uh, no, I don't think she did. She didn't really collect too many images of herself except photographs. She did collect the photographs of herself, but I don't think she displayed um, the art of most of the artists that were particularly American artists that were coming to visit her. This, it was cast in bronze. This is, of course, terracotta. Um, but it, it was cast in bronze. But that was the full figure, not the, not the head. Any other thoughts? So when this was done or commissioned or requested, where, where was, I it think it was I think it was requested by Davidson. He was not a shy man. <laughs> he would go up to public figures and just persuade them to sit for him. And I think he just had one of these outsized personalities that um, people would, would do it. You mentioned that Davidson wrote an autobiography. Did he do any other writing on his art or anything? 
No, I think Davidson did a lot of talking. <laughs> he always seemed to be out at the cafes talking with people and meeting with people and um, keeping up contacts that way. Um, but it's, it's an interesting autobiography. Um, he, he struggled, and, um, but he, I think he was such a great personality that, that, that he really gave himself quite, got a, he was quite a celebrity actually at the time. Mm -hmm. Less, less lasting celebrity than, than Gertrude Stein. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about Gertrude Stein, of course, is that her influence is, I think, arguably present today. I mean, it, it really was so enormous. On a fairly small circle, initially, um, she, was, she was really more a celebrity than a writer that everybody read. But eventually, I think she was, she was embraced by a lot of different factions, um, feminists. She became quite a, a lesbian icon for her mannish clothes and her short hair and her open relationship with Alice. Um, so I think she represented a lot of things to a lot of different people. Really a fascinating figure. Hard person to totally understand. Beth, have you got any other thoughts? Having worked, <laughs> worked on this exhibition yeah, coming up? Yeah. Uh -huh. There is another um, sculptor who did her head the same as Joe Davidson, which was uh, Jackie Lipschitz. Mm -hmm. Which was also actually one of the one of the pictures that was on um, Vanity Fair magazine, and then of course on the bottom was Picasso's famous mask-like portrait of 1906, and that's how Picasso and Gertrude Stein became so close and so friendly was she had endless sittings for Picasso. We couldn't quite figure out how to do his portrait of her. And during these many sittings, they would, would talk. She was a trained psychologist. She actually spent a couple of years in medical school um, and st had studied psychology. So I think Picasso's ideas of cubism were forming, and she had very interesting thoughts from psychological background about, the nature, about human nature and identity. So I think they really they really stimulated each other's thinking in that way. So you're right, she loved sitting for, for artists and, and really enjoyed that, that intersection. She kept on good terms with both Matisse and Picasso. Yes, I think so, of course. Yes, no, not Matisse. Matisse was the one who, yeah. Right, that's right. Both of these individuals made enemies as well as friends. Um, as is true of lots of large personalities. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. Thank you all for coming.